Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and when you think about the defining moments of queer history, you probably think about something like Stonewall. By now, we know the rough outline of what happened that night. There was a police raid at a bar, we fought back, we high-fived, had a kiki, all good stuff. But the Stonewall Uprising was a one-time event with a clear beginning and ending. The story and storytelling is already there in that one fiery moment. That's unfortunately just not the case for other history-defining events and places like, for example, the Women's House of Detention, which has a scope and scale that doesn't fit into a tight, easily digestible narrative. The Women's House of Detention was a prison in Greenwich Village that both housed queer people and also attracted queer people to the neighborhood. It was a landmark, an unavoidable fixture of queer life from 1931 when it opened to 1974 when it was torn down. It is hard to explain just how much it impacted queer and trans lives then and now, and today the historian Hugh Ryan is here to break it all down. Hugh has a new book out aptly titled The Women's House of Detention, and it refocuses our history in a way that I think will surprise you. So without further ado, let's hear it. From The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. So before I read the book, I thought this is going to be a book about queer people who lived in a prison. That's it. And that is only like the tiniest part of why this place mattered. So just to get everyone listening caught up and on the same page, can you give the broad overview, like the brief explanation of why it mattered and why we're even talking about this prison to begin with? I think the reason that I came to write about the Women's House of Detention initially was because it was a prison that dominated Greenwich Village in the mid 20th century, the period where we really start to think about modern categories of what it means to be gay or lesbian or trans, and also where we date a lot of our queer history to and from, right? Greenwich Village in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, Stonewall. All of that is swirling around this prison that no one ever seem to talk about when I talk to people about queer history, except when I started to talk to women and trans men who had been incarcerated there or who had grown up in the bars in the nimbus of the prison. And I discovered all of these data points that told me the prison mattered. Again, when I would talk to people about Stonewall, they would tell me, you know, that night on Stonewall, we looked to the prison because we saw the women rioting and chanting, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. And yet that didn't come up in discussions of Stonewall. And then I found out the prison was 500 feet from the Stonewall Inn, that they could see each other, that Christopher Street dead-ended into the prison, that the Gay Liberation Front was founded in part because they wanted to protest the House of Detention, that 40% of people today incarcerated in women's prisons identify as LGBTQ in some strain. Over and over again, these data points seem to tell me that this prison and prisons generally were incredibly important to queer history. And when I started to put that together, it filled in all of these other gaps. And I suddenly realized if prison records are one of our main sources of queer identity historically, than they were for those people at that time too, right? It's not just us historians looking back and using this data. These prisons were concatenating queer people into one place. And that place for women in New York was Greenwich Village, the most important spot in New York City's queer history. How could those two things not go together? And I think that 
for everything you're saying, what kind of like blew my mind was this was not Hugh Ryan kind of like uncovering a secret in history that no one knew about. Like this was a centrally located prominent building in like the middle of Greenwich Village. It was impossible to ignore. And so when you say that Stonewall occurred 500 feet away, I was like, who do I sue for malpractice? Because all you did was like move the camera over three inches to show the prison, right? But no one has like told that story and like move the camera. Yeah, I mean, the people who have tried, Arcus Flynn talks about this in oral history that was done with her about the daughters of Belitis, right? She talks about seeing what happened in the prison that night and that being how she realized Stonewall was happening. So much of this information seems to have just disappeared into a hole when the prison was closed in 1971 and then torn down in 1974. But the first lesbian love song on Broadway from the show Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, which is coming back this year, is centered in the women's house of detention. This is not a secret. It's simply something we have forgotten. Right. It had even got to the point where it was being recognized and written about in pop culture. Like that, like exemplifies like a certain like ethos. But one of the things you write to all this is that it was one of the village's most famous landmarks and a meeting place for locals and a must-see site for adventurous tourists. I think that sounds really counterintuitive for a prison. Can you elaborate on that? This was both a prison and a jail, which means that it held people who had been sentenced for some kind of arrest, but also people who were on trial and who were there very briefly. So a huge number of women and trans men were coming and going from the prison on a basically daily basis. And that was happening in Greenwich Village, where all of these other queer institutions and queer people were. So historically, and all the way up to the close of the prison, I can find records of queer women saying, I hung out at the pharmacy across the street to watch who was coming in and out to see if I knew anyone. Or when I didn't know what to do with myself and I wanted to meet queer people, I went and I hung out outside the gates of the prison. It was a meeting place because it was one of the few public institutions for queer women and trans men that could not be shut down by the police because they were the ones creating it. So in a strange counterintuitive way, the fact that it was a site of detention and punishment made it impenetrable to our systems of punishment and detention that would otherwise have shut it down if it were a gay pride center or a lesbian bar or a consciousness raising session. Right. I mean, and to that, the majority of people were like lower income women, women and trans masculine people, as you point out, queer people of color. And the counterintuitiveness to me is like, it's bad that they were being arrested, especially for like arbitrary crimes. But also these arrests left paper trails. I found it very moving to have records of these like early queer lives. It's a proof that, as you point out, that there was people living pre-Stonewall that were not ashamed of their queerness. They took pride in it, too. Were you surprised when you read that? I was not surprised when I read that. You know, I had done this kind of research before. What did surprise me, however, and what I really needed to think a lot about is that so many of the prominent early modern queer folks that we recognize, the Frank Kamenys, say, and the Bayard Rustins, the activists who we talk about changing the world for queer people. If you dig into their histories, what you'll read over and over again is, I went to the bars and that's where I met queer people who taught me that we weren't freaks or disgusting or strange or wrong. And I was arrested. And that taught me these things as well. And yet that 
idea that there was a pre-existing, before these people who supposedly gave us the idea of queer acceptance, that they are actually learning it from a group of people that we do not recognize because we do not have the individual records, because they were not rich, they were not white, they were not men, they did not have the power to publish their own stories or to bring their cases all the way to the Supreme Court. Those groups of people in community surrounding the Women's House of Detention and inside the Women's House of Detention are the ones who come up with these ideas of their naturalness, their normalness, and it predates the Mattachine Society. It predates the Daughters of Belitis. My biggest goal in doing this, like you said, was to find those stories of the women and transmasculine people who had these lives, who have not been recognized, because I knew, I knew I could not tell this story without getting close to their own thoughts, their own experiences. And so I also want to just like list the reasons why these people were arrested. You say that they were locked away for smoking, forgery, being homeless, attempting suicide, attempting murder, wearing pants, staying out late, accepting a ride from a man, prostitution, waywardism, disobedience, sending the definition of the word lesbian through the mail, being alone on the street, and lesbianism itself. Because of the arbitrary nature of those crimes, did that translate to a like lesser stigma around being locked up in the community you mean among queer women are you saying yes no there was still definitely a stigma about having been arrested and particularly when that arrest was connected to sexual identity a lot of these people were butch femme bar lesbians if they were in the sort of lesbian queer community at all and that community was looked down upon it was stigmatized often you know not within its own network but even there, these women would try to hide their arrest because increasingly throughout the 20th century, having been arrested at all would become a mark against your character that would hold you back forever. You could not get certain jobs. You could not get certain teaching licenses. You could not have certain kinds of government assistance. You could not get into certain scholarship programs for school. So you had to hide parts of your life in order to make it as a person. And that didn't necessarily mean you hid it from other queer people. And we find these communities that are developing around the prison through incarceration, where people are openly talking about it with each other. But certainly, they would try to hide that from any employer, any kind of future government arrest. Oh, because I'm thinking, okay, this person was arrested for wearing pants, smoking on the street, and for being alone at night. And to me, I would think like, oh, I can hire them. It would be great if anyone thought that way. But in fact, not only does any amount of incarceration or being found guilty ruin your ability to get employed later, but in fact, studies have shown that simply being arrested and found innocent makes it almost impossible for you to get a job later. The stigma of incarceration is incredible. And in fact, it points to something really fundamental about how our justice system is really just fucked up. We have this idea, one, that you can be found innocent by our system. But what we largely find is that if you have ever been arrested, it is assumed that there is some kind of guilt on you, no matter what happens. You are found innocent, the charges are dropped, the judge writes a letter saying you were innocent, nothing actually came of this arrest does not matter. You have a stigma for life. On top of that, we have a justice system which revolves around this idea that detaining people is a way to in some way pay off their crime, right? So the idea is that once you serve your time, you have been exonerated. But we don't treat people that way. Once you have served time, you are stigmatized forever, often by the government, but frequently by everyone on earth. And that is why in the U.S. today, recidivism is so high. 
75% of prisoners arrested today will be rearrested within five years. 75%. We can maybe assume that that rate was equally as high during like the time of the prison. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was so high. Oftentimes what would happen, you know, you're naming all of those crimes that people get arrested for. Yeah. Often those crimes are really just a way of saying this is a disreputable woman or transmasculine person, though the system did not think that way, just thought woman, disreputable woman who will not be able to support herself. The real crime, the heart of it was poverty. Because if you are a woman who is not properly feminine, you will never be a wife and you will never be a maid. And so we need to arrest you so that we can train you inside prison to be properly feminine so you can then become a proper maid or a proper wife. That was the idea. They understood that what was happening is that these people were poor. But then they released them from prison with a record so you probably can't get employed at all. And with absolutely no support. For most of the time the prison was around, women got released with a dime in their pocket or 25 cents. From the very start of the Women's House of Detention, the earliest annual reports, you see people in the system, judges, lawyers, mayors, saying, if we release these people back on the streets with no support and no money, what are they going to do other than prostitute themselves? steal things, embezzle. We had created a system that almost required them to go back to commit quote-unquote crimes in order to survive. And with the sex work of it all, sex work back then was this, or prostitution, as it was called in the law, was an incredibly broad term that could be applied to almost anything. So it sounds like it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. You arrest a woman who was not doing sex work for doing sex work, and you deprive her of being able to make any kind of income in her life, and she has to result to doing sex work. Yep. And then you incarcerate her with a whole lot of people who actually are sex workers who can explain the ins and outs of the trade to you. We created a system that made these women become sex workers. And in the law, there is legal precedent in the teens, 20s, and 30s that starts to say, one, arrest for sex work does not require the exchange of sex for money. Two, an arrest for sex work cannot happen to the person paying because the offer of sex is the crime, not the payment for it. And three, men cannot be vagrant prostitutes in the eyes of the law. Now, eventually that changes. And the first men who are arrested under these laws are queer men soliciting, right? This category is used to target people for being incorrectly gendered. And that's why we have this incarceration crisis among queer women and trans men today. Oh, and so because we are not doing any kind of formal education or care to these people in prison, they're learning through each other how to like become an actual like sex worker. Like the education's happening, just not for what they want. Exactly. And the system is also educating people about what it means to be queer. I'm not a person who believes that we are born this way and that we have these kind of internal identities that are the same for all of us and are transhistorical and cannot change over time. I truly believe when you look at the experiences of people in single sex spaces, whether those are ships or colleges or prisons, what have you, what you see over and over again is that there are people who are constitutionally in a sort of way queer, that they would be trans or lesbian or gay almost no matter what it seems. But there are also many of us for whom the experience of having other options, of being in other situations, can open us to experiences, to emotions. I often like to say that sexual orientation is not fake, but I don't think we actually understand it correctly. Sexual orientation is 
a guidepost. It is part of what determines the sex and desire that we have, but it is not the only element of it. For some of us, it is predominant, right? That our sexual orientation almost exclusively matches our desires and experiences. But for other people, sexual orientation doesn't have as strong a hold, I think. That it exists, you may be oriented in a certain way, but experiences, emotions, other kinds of attachments can affect it. Homosociality as opposed to homosexuality. I think all of these things actually swirl about and determine how we act as individuals. And when we get caught in this binary idea of you either are gay or you aren't gay, we don't really understand the experiences of people who get to, for whatever reason, exist outside of compulsory heterosexuality. Compulsory heterosexuality being our entire society that is built around the idea that you will end up heterosexual and that there are supports for all kinds of heterosexuality. I'm really glad you brought that up because... There are, is a lot of record of like people in this prison who had like same-sex relationships but considered themselves straight and maybe were in opposite-sex relationships afterward. But also the way we view sexuality today is so fixed and rigid. And like I have to assume that that is why we have like partially gravitated towards the word queer because of like the kind of like expanse that it allows. Like, am I making false connections? No, I mean, I think that that is definitely part of it. I also think that we gravitated, I will say for myself, towards the word queer because it does something a little bit different than other terms for sexuality. Our first group of terms for sexual orientation and stuff like that are things like sodomite and crossdresser. They're about specific behaviors. They're not about identities. They're about what you do. Our next group of terms like lesbian, gay, trans, etc., are identities based on behaviors, right? Cross-dressers become trans people. Not all trans people are cross-dressers, but fit the category, blah, blah, blah. But that's the kind of evolution of terminology. Queer does something different. Queer indexes where your identity, your sexual identity, which is based on your sexual actions or desires, fits in a hierarchy of identities. Queer is inherently, for me, a political term because it asks, are you stigmatized because of your identity based on your sexual or gendered desires, right? It's doing something slightly different. And I think that's really useful for us right now because I'm going to go on like a, a two-minute detour about the evolution of queer terms real fast. I'll time you. Go. In the 19th century, we have this idea of the invert. It's a model that's very much based on the body. It collects certain groups of people, but folks that we would think of as gender normative homosexuals probably didn't think of themselves as queer back then because love between men and love between women was common. It was expected. Everybody lived in sort of single sex lives. Most of the people you interacted with are other men or other women. People like Abraham Lincoln slept in the same bed with their quote unquote male friends for years at a time, right? In that world, gender normative homosexuals are basically invisible. Cities come around, right? We get urban centers. Suddenly, there are tons of people filling these spaces who are able to see each other and understand their desires for each other. And we start to get different categories. We start to break apart that invert category into what we today think of as homosexual, as transgender, as intersex, because we have so many people concatenated in such a small amount of space that they see each other and form communities. We are now going through that process yet again, but with the internet. The internet is doing the same thing that urbanization did for us in the late 19th century. In the late 20th century, it begins to enable people who cannot find each other in other ways to find connections and to establish this idea of themselves. So these categories that are growing that we make fun of all the time now, you know, sapiosexuals, pansexuals, demi, ace, all of this stuff, I see those as the same process that happened in the late 19th century. People are finding each other around stigmatized identities based on their sexual desires, activities, activities 
And they are naming them in smaller ways. And they're naming them in ways that, to a degree, reject our understanding of sexual orientation as the only way in which we name these things. Sapiosexual, for instance. This is one I come back to a lot. You see a lot of people making fun of this. This idea that I'm attracted to people based on knowledge, thought, smarts, intelligence, something that is separate from the body. Oftentimes, you'll see people say, oh, that's just bisexuality, right? But bisexuality in a sexual orientation mode says, I am attracted to men and women. That is a sexual orientation that is not about being attracted to a specific gender or body, but to a different type of experience. It's not fluctuating around sexual orientation. And that naming only becomes possible when those people can find each other. In previous generations, maybe they did think of themselves as bisexual, or maybe they thought of themselves as primarily heterosexual, but sometimes something happened, or primarily homosexual, but sometimes something else happened. Now we're enabling that group to sort of come across as a constitutional whole. I don't want to imply that inverts were less real than the categories we have today. We simply are drawing different circles and saying that circle is an identity, and because that circle has been drawn, now people can find each other in it and they can live that identity out. It may be temporary, it may be lifelong, it may be something that they fluctuate between, but it's a different understanding that has been made possible by the way people can meet each other and dream these identities into existence through their communal experiences. I mean, there is like a primary, like the younger population, but there are other people who are don't like any labels for gender, for sexuality. And I think that's like a lovely mentality. But what I cannot connect is like when we are actively being discriminated against in like state houses around the country, how do you fight for your rights that are being taken away from you when you don't have a name? Exactly. You need to be able to organize and labels are useful for organizing. They're useful for categorizing. That's why we have this boom in labels at the end of the 19th century. The Victorians and the eugenicists were so into labeling and categorizing, right? Darwin, taxonomy, all of this is happening at the same time. And it's useful, but it also is problematic, right? We have to balance those two things. These labels help us, but they can also hold us back. And so during the time period of the prison, in the earlier years, it was open in 1929, was homosexual kind of like the umbrella term that all of these like queer women were like being labeled as? It's a little complicated. I wouldn't say exactly. Yes, you do start to see. So the, the prison is starts construction in 1929, opens in end of 1931. First people are incarcerated beginning of 1932, I believe. And at that time, you see a lot of concern around homosexuality in the case notes. You see a lot of people getting labeled that way. You don't see as much lesbian. You do see sort of older holdover terms showing up a lot, though, because understand, 1931-32, we have these new ideas about gay, lesbian, trans that are coming from Sigmund Freud and are coming from sexologists, but the adults working in those prisons, sometimes they received their education in the 1890s. They're still working off a body-based model. So all the time you'll see the one that comes up a lot is bisexual. They don't mean bisexual the way we mean bisexual. They do technically mean people who are having sex with people of quote unquote both sexes. But in their minds, bisexual meant a body that was inverted. You are somewhat male and somewhat female, and therefore you have sex with people of both sexes, but it becomes back to the fact of your body. So in the 40s and 50s, I find all these files where younger queer women, mostly women of color, are expressing bisexuality as a sexual orientation, the way we think of it today. And their social workers are expressing bisexuality and saying, oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. You're bodily normal, so you can't be bisexual. And the younger folks are like, that makes no sense. This isn't about my body. I'm not saying I'm not a woman. But to these older people, those two ideas are 
the same. There is no separation between your body being different and your sexual orientation being different. So to them, you know, my body is different and the body cannot be changed, whereas like my thoughts can when it's moved to the mind. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. So in their eyes, they'll say things like she is menstruating and wants to be a nurse. She's obviously not gay. You know, which seems insane to us, right? But what they're trying to get at is her body is the right kind of body. Therefore, her gender is the right kind of gender. Therefore, her sexuality must be in line with those other two things. We can fix her. Wow. I'm fascinated by our changing labels. And we live in a time right now, and I don't know if it is unique to our history or if labels are always changing, but they've been changing so quickly in just our lifetime. And I find that amazing, but I also don't know if that's unique. You know, I think that it happens anytime we see large population clusters gathering. I mean, you go back historically, you can see there's a reason there's so much queer history in London. There's a reason there's so much queer history in Baghdad, right? These places are population centers where we can see different kinds of life and experience and desire and name them in community. But the other thing I would say about that is regardless of the naming and the labeling and those changes, the law does not need names, labels, or even laws in order to crack down on behaviors that they think are immoral or bad. So while I think it is very important that we understand how these names and labels change and how they change communities, how these ideas shift and form, the thing that I do want to focus back on is that women and girls and transmasculine people, even though the law wasn't thinking of them that way, got targeted for being immoral by our prison system. And now that has a lot to do with gender, it has a lot to do with sexuality, but the truth of it is the women's prison system develops as a way of social control. It goes back to the 1870s. We had a system previously that was about punishing the violent antisocial acts of white men. Post-Civil War, as black people of all genders and women of all races are having more and more space in the public sphere, that system is repurposed for social control. So things men, particularly white men, were never arrested for and were never incarcerated for public drunkenness, hiring a prostitute, drug use, all of these behaviors become criminalized when the wrong groups of people are doing them. So we have a system that was built to punish women and black people and then other people of color and then trans men on purpose in a way that it was never intended when it was just aimed at white men. All of these quote-unquote crimes against the public order, that's what fills the prison systems of the 20th century, particularly the women's prisons. And in that way, this book, which is about history, is also about our present because so little has changed. Absolutely. And so to that, I don't want to ignore the stories of the women and transmasculine people that you wrote about because it was very bad, to put it lightly. And a few months ago, we had Jay Tool on the podcast who talked about her experience being locked up at the Women's House of Detention. And she shared a story about the horrifying physicals that they underwent. That story didn't actually make it into our final cut, so no one's heard it. But I thought we could play it now, if that's okay with you. Yeah, if, if that's okay with Jay, too. I just, I want to make sure that this is something she was okay with sharing it. And... Yes, oh my god, yeah, yeah, I appreciate you asking, though. Fabulous. Yeah, so this story from Jay, it is very graphic in terms of sexual assaults and violence. Just a heads up there to everyone. You can fast forward 50 seconds if you want, but I do think it's important because it is a testament to just how traumatic things were for the prisoners. So let's play it. The nightmare of it was, you know, the physical uh, 
The physicals they give you when you first go in were horrendous. I always remember this one time I went in. You know, they do a cavity search of you, but that's not the worst part. The worst part is when you go to see the doctor. Call him a fucking doctor. And I do remember this one time where it got me up on the table and it felt like his whole hand arm was up inside of me for a very, very long time. When he was done, he said, get off the table, and I couldn't move. I mean, the pain was so, so bad, I couldn't even move off the table. And when I did, you know, the blood started coming down, and he threw me a paper towel and said, hurry up. I have other, you know, other prisoners out there that I have to uh, examine, blah, 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 blah. And I can feel it in my bones as I tell that story. I can still feel it in my bones. I can taste it, what was done. Yeah, that is a horrible story. Jay told me that story as well. And it's one that almost every person incarcerated in the house of detention talks about. And that is the reason why I thought it was important testimony to play, because it was not just a unique one person experience. This was commonplace, as you wrote in the book. Yeah, absolutely. The first protests against the prison are about these physicals, because not only were people being given a physical examination, they were also being given a forced enema. They were being given a cavity search that were looking for drugs, which in the 1950s, there's actually a report written by an associate warden where he says they have never found any drugs in 20-something years of cavity searches, right? So not only is this invasive and awful, it's useless. And then on top of that, what they were searching for aside from drugs were signs of sexually transmissible infections, which in the earliest years of the prison, we're talking gonorrhea, we're talking syphilis. These were things that could not be cured well. The tests were not very good. And because of this thing called the American Plan, which started under World War I but continued all the way up to the 70s, it enabled districts around the country to incarcerate any woman Technically, it could have been person, but it was only women who was either had gonorrhea or syphilis or was thought to have it until she was cured. And cured meant being pumped full of things like arsenic and mercury for months at a time. You might be picked up, like we talked about earlier, for smoking or accepting a ride with a man. You then get found innocent, let's say, or the charges get dropped. But in that time, they've already tested you for gonorrhea and they found that you were positive. The test might be wrong. That happened frequently. Didn't matter. You would then spend six months in a detention hospital or in the house of detention or in Bellevue being treated with these toxic drugs before they would release you back out onto the street. In fact, we didn't have good treatments for syphilis and gonorrhea until the sulfa class of drugs comes about in World War II. And in World War II, they tested those drugs non-consensually on imprisoned women at the house of detention, right? Women were seen as vectors for disease that could be spread to men, particularly soldiers. And that is part of the reason we have these brutal physicals, because they were not about the health of the women and trans men who had been arrested. They were about the health of the imagined important people who were white men. And what has carried over to today is that if someone commits a crime and they're locked up, we kind of have just mutually agreed that as a society, they can suffer, you know, horrific abuse and rape and poor living conditions. And that is just a result of their convictions. We turn an eye, our eye away from it. Not only do we make systems that violate them, like these systems of quote-unquote healthcare and these cavity searches, but we then turn a blind eye to the 1 in 12 people every year who are sexually violated inside the prison system. And that's just reported, 
right? When we imagine how many people are violated by the system itself or do not report their violations, we have created a system that routinizes sexual violence. And so Jay Toole, who we heard from, she describes the prison as a nightmare and a playhouse. And you make the really important point in the book that calling it a playhouse, it didn't erase the overcrowding or the hard conditions. It is more of a testament to their resiliency, right? Not a reflection on the prison itself. Absolutely. So many queer women, even while talking about how awful the prison was, you see Audre Lorde and Joan Nessel and all of these folks saying it was awful, but it was also a symbol of community. When you have so few other places and when the government is mushing you all together into one place, it can't be anything else, right? Prisons will never be anything but prisons, but prisoners will always be so much more. Right. Also, with the the gay liberation front, you know, that's something I think that people know a passerby's amount of knowledge about. We've talked about it on the show before, and yet... One thing I did not know is that the Gay Liberation Front's like earliest protests like took place in front of the prison protesting the conditions there. Yeah, this in fact is how the Gay Liberation Front forms, to be honest. Right after Stonewall riots, we've got these organizations like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Bleedus, which are called homophile organizations. They are really courageous. I don't want to dismiss the work that they did, but a lot of it was about assimilating into the existing system. After Stonewall, younger radicals who are often involved in other movements already, the yippies, the radical feminists, et cetera, et cetera, start to meet and say, we want to do something. We want to protest. And the Mattachine Society says, no, you cannot go protest the prison in support of the Black Panther members, Afini Shakur and Joan Byrd, who are held there. That would alienate the police, the very people we want to get in with. And these younger radicals said, well, we're going to form a new organization to protest it, and we're going to call it the Gay Liberation Front, right? The Gay Liberation Front is founded to support Black Panthers in the Women's House of Detention. And that's their first protest in August of 1969, months before their generally recognized first protest against the Village Voice. What these people understood is that they were fighting the same enemy and that the same forces were aligned against them. And that's the basis upon which they then knitted their activist communities. And that, for me, was one of the biggest takeaways from the book. As you said, 40% of people in women's prisons are LGBTQ, and yet we only talk about the incarceration as being a, like, quote-unquote, black issue. You know, something that only affects, quote-unquote, those people. And yet, no, 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 it's a women's issue, it's a black issue, it's a queer issue, and... I think that was, I haven't heard incarceration framed that way before. And honestly, I, you know, came to this thinking prisons were bad and could be made better. Yeah. What I understood after looking at this historically is that prisons are based on a poisoned root, a terrible understanding of justice. They cannot be improved. It brought me to a place of abolition to understand the historical mechanism by which our prisons became what they are today. And that, I think, is what is so important for me when I look at that 40% statistic, When I look at the prison system, it is not redeemable. Along with bringing me to a place of abolition, this helped me to understand a different idea about what LGBTQ political movements could be. Because what prisons are, largely, are places where uncared for people, people who are poor, black, queer, abandoned by their family, mentally ill, chemically addicted, get a minimal service. And that service is provided only as a mechanism for keeping them away from people who actually matter, non-incarcerated people, rich people, white people, men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
the queer movement, I think, should be able to see and focus on this idea of care, right? That's what connects all of this is people who are uncared for. And when I looked into that, when I understood, thanks to abolitionists like Mariam Kaba, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, like Angela Davis, because of their work, I was able to understand that when we move away from crime as our idea and we move to harm and care, I could see a queer movement that felt so powerful. What is it that LGBT seniors without descendants need? Care. What is it queer homeless youth who have been abandoned by their families need? Care. What is it that refugees who are escaping homophobic persecution need? Care. What is it that people with AIDS need from our government and largely do not get? Care. If we reframe the queer political movement as focusing on care for individuals who are largely left outside of the nuclear family and the government as it exists now, which are the only two sources of care we're supposed to depend on, we can see a way for a political movement that is robust and powerful. And like those early meetings of the radical lesbians and the Black Panthers and the young lords and the gay liberationists outside the women's prison, the house of detention, they can bring us together. Focusing on care is something we all need rather than focusing on smaller scale interventions, which matter like marriage. Gay marriage is important, right? I think that gay people should not be kept out of the ability to get married. But I also believe that our government has no fundamental interest in my sex life. They do have a fundamental interest in seeing that I am cared for. So instead of fighting for a system that allows two gay people to get married, maybe we fight for a system that says everyone deserves care. Relationships of care should be supported by the government and should get tax benefits and should be allowed other kinds of status because that is work that will not fall on the government if we do it. Those are people who will be cared for and will not end up in prisons, asylums, emergency rooms, and on the street. Care. Care is the rubric that abolition brings me to. I love that. Thank you for spending so much time today. This is fantastic. Thank you. I, I mean, I'm so excited to talk about this and, and you spent so much time thinking about it. It's obvious and you had great questions. And that was Hugh Ryan. His book, The Women's House of Detention, is out right now and I highly recommend it. Now, that other voice you heard in the interview was from the amazing Jay Tool. There is a link to the full interview with her in our show notes. And if you'd like to see a picture of the house at attention, for me, seeing this monster building in the middle of the neighborhood really helped to clarify just how prominent of a place in the village it was. So if you want to see that, we've also got a link to our Instagram in the show notes where we posted a picture of it. So that's on Instagram right now at LGBTQPod. And then as always, you know it's coming. We have to ask, as always, if you enjoyed this interview, please help us spread the word. It is the number one way you can help our show continue to remain free. So please post on social media, send a text to your friends. All those things are deeply appreciated and helpful. Thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.